Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as, uh, as we open your word, you would speak to our hearts. As we cover difficult territory, we remind ourselves it's still the word of God. And therefore, it has purpose and meaning and can speak directly into our heart. And so, Lord, we pray that right now you would come. Well, we have no other agenda right this moment other than to hear from you. That's why we're here, not to hear from a man. So I pray, Lord, that I might decrease and you might increase in me, that your word might go out to accomplish the purpose that you have for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's open up to Romans chapter 1. We're back to our study through the book of Romans. And as you can see by our title, that we're getting ready to head into some tough territory for a while here in the book of Romans. We're going to have about two chapters worth of stuff that most people don't want to hear and most preachers don't want to preach. But that's what we do. We just go through the Bible. And so this morning we got the bad news. And if you don't understand what I mean by that, look at verse 18. We're only doing one verse today, and it's verse 18. And this is the bad news. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when you read that, you realize that this morning we don't have a real feel-good type of topic when you start talking about the wrath of God, yet there it is, right there in the pages of Holy Scripture, right? And so what we do is we remind ourselves this morning that the subject of the book of Romans, that the whole subject of the book is the gospel, the justification by God, of sinful humanity is the gospel. And so what we have in the book of Romans is this detailed exposition, this explanation of the gospel. And the word gospel is just this old English word that literally means good tidings or good news. It's the good news that the Savior has come, that the Messiah has come. But Before we get to the good news, what precedes the good news is really, really, really bad news. That's the reason for our title. And the bad news is there in verse 18, that the wrath of God, the wrath of God Almighty has been revealed from heaven against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so before the the book of Romans, before Paul walks us Through the good news, the better half of chapters 1 through 3, Paul takes us into the reality of the human situation, which is really, really bad news in our rebellion, in our sinfulness, in our depravity that is just inherent in the human heart. And then he explains to us that what comes as a result of that is the wrath of God. The judgment of God is His wrath upon, the consequence is, 
his wrath upon the unrighteous, that, that sinfulness, that, that depravity. And so in a very real way, the bad news is kind of the first step in understanding the truth. The bad news helps us to see ourselves rightly and to also see God rightly, which is absolutely necessary before we'll ever look for a Savior, right? Because we have to understand that we need saving before we're ever going to cry out for anybody to save us. And furthermore, for, for the church, for believers, if we never really understand the bad news, if we never really accept the bad news portion of the gospel, we'll never fully appreciate the grace and the love and the forgiveness part of the good news. And so while verses like verse 18 are not much fun to preach and probably worse to hear, they're mandatory, aren't they? We understand that there's a side of the gospel that is offensive. The gospel's offensive because it exposes the ugly truth of our heart. And so what ends up happening oftentimes, because the gospel is offensive, we find then a lot of kind of seeker-friendly churches that avoid the bad news part of the gospel. And they'll avoid the subjects such as God's wrath, and they won't use words like hell and sin and judgment, and they won't speak of our need for repentance, even though the very first words recorded to John the Baptist were what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven are at hand. The very first words of Jesus once he got to his ministry were what? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The very first message ever preached in the church by Peter, the entirety of the message could be summed up in the words that he recorded when he said, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Even though Paul went out preaching and his message to the whole world was that God is declaring now that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's a consistency, isn't there? From John to Jesus to Peter to Paul throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. The, the, the bad news preceded the good news. And so, if we don't preach verses like verse 18 when we come across them, if we only tell people what they want to hear, we're not giving them the truth of the whole gospel. The Bible speaks of in, in 2 Timothy 4, 3, that there's going to be these people in the last days that will not adhere to or will not endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears tickled. And so what it says is they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire. What that means is that there's going to be people that are going to seek out churches that are only going to tell them what they want to hear, that are only going to make them feel good and not give them the true condition of the human heart. I've spoke about difficult things before only to, people, only to see people stand up in the middle of the service and leave. 
They're leaving. Why? Because they're going to go out there and find somebody that's going to speak about the things that they want to hear that's going to make them feel good about themselves. But the sad result of that is this, that there will be people sitting in churches and are today across the world. There are and will be people sitting in churches that are not saved because they've never heard the truth of the gospel and never responded to it. And it's not new. It was happening in the days of Jeremiah. If you read through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was called to one of the the heaviest of ministries in that he was called to speak out against the sins of Jerusalem and the people of that day. He was called to preach the pending wrath of God that was coming upon the people of Judea. That's what he was called to do by God. But there were at the same time also these other prophets that were going around and telling people, you know, Jeremiah is crazy and and you're perfectly fine with God. God's not upset with your sin and what you're doing. Don't worry about it. Everything's good. Everything's wonderful. Don't worry about what Jeremiah is telling you. But but I'm going to tell you this. I love you too much and I fear God too much not to tell you the truth of verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it's not a popular subject in contemporary preaching. And it's even less popular subject in the ears of the unbelieving world. This has to be the biggest barrier to people getting saved. And that is the pride of thinking that you're good enough. And that God should just be fine with you right where you are, the way you are. I've heard it countless times when I've tried to explain to somebody their need for Jesus. When I've tried to explain to somebody their need for for the saving of their sin. And, And if you've shared the gospel much, you've heard it too. I've heard people say, listen, I don't need that because I'm not a bad person. I work hard, I take care of my family, I never murdered anybody, I help out where I can, and then they'll give you an example. The guy down the road the other day needed help with us and so, and I went down there and helped him. I'm not a bad person. And if that's not good enough for your God, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Guys, that's why we need the Bible. Because it gives us a right understanding of ourselves. Because people think that they are inherently good. There's this country song out right now that just came out and and it's most people are good or I think most people are good or something along that. And that's the way most people think. They think I'm inherently good. I've just made a few mistakes along the way. Years ago, I haven't done it in a while and, and, and I wish I had the time to get back there, but I used to be involved in prison ministry for about three years. I wasn't in prison, but I would go in to teach a Bible study in prison for about three years. And I was going to OCCC on a weekly basis, and I would go into Halava on occasion. And I would go in into general population, um, into module 13. And module 13, I didn't know when I went there, but module 13 was the worst of the worst. I was originally assigned to a different module, and when I got to that module, they go, no, no, we got a guy coming into this module, why don't you run down to 13? So naively, I ran down to 13, and I began my Bible studies there, and I found out that this is where they put the murderers and the rapists and the the child uh, offenders, and all of the worst of the worst were in module 
13. People that did, had done heinous, heinous things. And I would go in and I'd get a table and I'd sit down and all the guys would come and we would do a Bible study together and they would often confide in me the things that they had done. But you know what I heard over and over and over and over again in module 13? They would say, hey, I know, I know you're meeting me in here, but, but I'm really a nice guy. I, I've just had some bad influence. I've had a lapse of judgment at times. I used to party a little bit and it got away from me. There was always some sort of justification for why we were there. And most people think that way. I'm inherently good. And the way that we get to that thinking as humanity is we begin to compare ourselves to other people, don't we? We look around at other people to see how we stack up morally. But the convenient thing about that is you can always find somebody who's done something worse than you. And the moment that we start to feel conviction about something that we've done wrong, we quickly look to find some worse perpetrator to make us feel better about what we've done. And that is the reason that God gave us the Bible, so that we would see ourselves rightly, and so that we would see Him rightly. And we would see ourselves in light of who God is. And compared to a perfectly holy and righteous God, what the Bible says of us in Jeremiah 17, 9, is that the human heart is the most deceitful thing of all. It is desperately wicked, and who can possibly know it? What the Bible says of us in Isaiah 53, 6, is that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have all turned to our own way, meaning that every one of us has rebelled against a righteous God and we're trying to do it our own way. And the Bible teaches us that the result of that then, the unrighteousness of man in the presence of a holy, holy God has incurred his wrath as a penalty. That, that's what verse 18 is talking about in your Bible that we just read. And to make things worse than that, because you didn't think they could get worse, did you? They can get worse. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it says that we are by nature children of wrath. We are not by nature children of God. We are by nature the creation of God. But because we have this sin nature so deeply ingrained in us, our depravity, is so deeply ingrained in us that our destiny, if we are apart from Christ, is to face the wrath of Almighty God. That's where we were headed, and that's where anyone is headed apart from Christ. But here's my question to the church, to believers that know and have heard these things. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because for some reason... When the Bible tells us of God's immense love and God's radical grace, when the Bible tells us of His extreme forgiveness and the joy and peace that we can have in Christ, it's all amens, isn't it? We can get a hearty amen for the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the joy and the peace in Christ. We believe it. We love it. We love to hear it. We'll even share it. But, when God, in the exact same Bible, tells us of His extreme wrath and judgment, 
why is it that at that point that so much of the church acts as though it's not real? Or we dismiss it as if it was written for someone else in a different time and place. I came across this passage. I'm going to read it to you. You tell me what you think. It's in Nahum. Yep, there's a book in the Bible called Nahum. (laughs) Not one that we spend a lot of time in. But it says this in Nahum 1-2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemy. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The mountains quake because of him. The hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved at his presence and the world and all of its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Whew. I don't know about... You, but but that's in the Bible. Do we understand that side of God that so hates sin? That's what verse 18 is talking about. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 18. We love the stories, don't we, of Jesus going and touching and healing a leper. We love the stories of Jesus calling the little children to himself. And we should because it reveals something very special about our Savior. But do we also at the same time have at least enough balance to acknowledge that Jesus himself spoke more about hell than he did about heaven? Do we also understand that Jesus described hell more vividly than any other person in the Bible. It was Jesus that told us that it's a place of torment in Luke 16. It was Jesus that spoke of the unquenchable fire and the worm that never dies in Mark chapter 9. It was Jesus himself that explained to us the weeping and the gnashing of teeth by those that are in anguish and in regret in Matthew chapter 13. It was Jesus that speaks of hell as complete outer darkness. It was him who compared it to Gehenna which was this dump outside of the walls of Jerusalem where everybody would throw their trash and it just constantly burned with people's trash. And if there were people that had died and were homeless and nobody claimed them, they would just throw the dead bodies out there and there were maggots and all this horrible stuff out in Gehenna. It was Jesus that gave us this picture of what hell is. Do do we believe that side of the Bible as well? It was Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 that said he will sit on his throne and separate believers from unbelievers like a shepherd. So he's going to put sheep on the right. He's going to put goats on the left. And then it says this, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. But then it says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are accursed into eternal fire. Do do we believe that this is a real thing that's really going to happen? In Revelation chapter 20, it says this. 
I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away, but there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the death which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do we believe that this is a real thing that is really going to happen? See, the reason that this is so incredibly important for us to understand, church, the reason it's important for you and I to understand that the judgment of God against sin is His wrath is because if we don't understand that portion of it, we will never, ever, ever understand what actually happened up upon the cross. Because on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied by Christ's sacrifice. And there are people right now that are struggling to figure this out. I hear from people sometimes that, that they believe and, and they believe the Bible, but they're struggling with this one point. And they're struggling to figure out how it is that our, son, that our sins, my sins, your sins can be atoned for because Jesus was beaten up. And they're struggling to figure out how it is that if a Roman soldier took Jesus and they nailed him up to a cross, that they put him up on a cross, how is it that that takes away my sins? How is it possible that these Roman nails that were driven through Jesus' hands and feet, how is it that that's what took away my sins? And the answer is that it didn't. That's not what took away our sins. What takes away our sin is that while Jesus was up on the cross, the world went dark for three hours while God Almighty poured the entirety of His wrath upon Jesus Christ. All of the sin of humanity was judged in Christ on the cross at that moment. What saves us is that every ounce of the righteous and holy judgment of God Almighty for the penalty of our sins was thrust upon Jesus on the cross. That's what saves us. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And when Jesus had paid the full price for our sin upon the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And at that moment, the full wrath of God Almighty against all sin and unrighteousness had been completely paid for. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? 
the wrath of God through Christ Jesus. Are you guys with me? Listen, it's important that we get this stuff. Because Jesus did not just come to make bad people act better. Jesus didn't come to just merely help us through this life. Jesus came to take our wrath. The wrath of God that we were headed for. Guys, one thing that drives me absolutely nuts is bad preaching about the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes you'll hear a preacher say something to the effect of the reason that Jesus was so tormented in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason that he was there on his knees sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane is because he knew what was going to happen over the next few hours, that he was going to be severely beaten, he was going to get this crown of thorns, that he was going to be whipped by the Romans, and then these nails were going to be driven through him. And he was fearing the pain. And that's why he was sweating blood. Let me tell you, that's not true. Because if that were true, it would have made Jesus weaker than his followers. Because countless Christians have been tortured and gone to their death as martyrs, singing hymns of praises to the Lord with a smile on their face. All you got to do is study a little bit of church history, and you will find Christians thrown to wild beasts, skinned alive, hung on crosses, burned at the stake, stoned to death, all the while singing praises to the Lord. Are we to believe that Jesus was weaker than them and he was fearing the nails? No. Jesus actually reveals why he was so tormented to the point of sweating blood when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he reveals it when he prayed this. Father, if it's willing, let this cup And that's the key to it. Let this cup pass from me. Let me tell you what was not in the cup. The crown of thorns was not in the cup. The nails were not in the cup. The physical pain that he was going to endure by the whipping of a a Roman scourge was not in the cup. The Bible tells us what was in the cup. From the book of Job to Psalms to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, throughout the book of Lamentations, and you get into Revelation, it tells us what was in the cup. Do you know what was in the cup? The wrath of God Almighty was in the cup. In the cup was the accumulated fury of God against all of the sin of humanity. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus chose to drink the cup. He chose the cup. In Matthew chapter 26, 42, it says that he was there in the garden of Gethsemane after praying the first time. It says he went away to pray a second time. And he says, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus said, in essence, bring me the cup. Bring me the cup so that for all that come to him by faith now, the cup of wrath that every one of us deserves because of our sin has been consumed for us. That's what it meant there in Romans 5.8 when it said that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more having been justified by his blood, we are saved from the wrath of God because he consumed the cup for us. And here's how it works. Here's the gospel for you. Either Jesus drank the cup for you 
or you have to drink the cup yourself. That's what it tells us in Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. It says, For the cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams and is well mixed. If you go back to the original language there, when it says the wine foams and is well mixed, it's talking about it being boiling. It's this boiling cup that's agitated, that's troubled. It's the wrath of God in the cup, and it says that he pours it out. And surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So either we have accepted Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, either he has drank in the cup for us and we have been washed of sin, or we still have a cup to drink. And so here's why, guys. It is so very important on an occasion like this that we come across it in Scripture that we acknowledge, understand, and talk about the wrath of God. I'm going to tell you why it's so important. As opposed to just avoiding it and just talking about things that make people feel good because we could do that. This isn't my favorite message to preach, by the way, for you guys. And it's probably not your favorite message to hear. It's heavy stuff, isn't it? But there's a reason why. It's so important. It's the reason why we study through the Bible so that we don't miss and skip over the the difficult things. The reason why it's so important for you and I to acknowledge and understand and talk about the wrath of God as opposed to avoiding it is because If there's any unsaved among us, they need to know the truth. That's one reason. I'm going to give you two. If there's anybody in here that's never come to Christ, they need to know the truth. A disease has to be diagnosed before you seek a cure. And in the same way, Scripture reveals to us the bad news before it gives us the good news. person has no reason to seek salvation from sin if they don't know that they're condemned by it. So the first reason is we always want to be able to tell those around us that don't know Jesus the truth of their condition. The second is for the believer. That is for most of us in here. Christian, saint of the Most High God, This is why you and I need to understand the wrath of God from which we're saved. Because if you and I don't understand it, you and I will never truly appreciate what God has done for us. We'll never see the complete beauty of Christ if we don't understand what we've been saved from. We'll never truly appreciate the extreme grace that we have been given until we understand the judgment that we were once under. We'll never understand, we'll never completely appreciate the fullness of God's love if we don't understand the cup of wrath that was taken for us. And we will never appreciate the immense forgiveness of God if we don't know the eternal consequences that were waiting us apart from Christ. That's why it's so important that we understand these things. If we don't have this understanding, we will then have a degraded view of Christ and His sacrifice. 
which much of the church has. Let me explain what I mean by that. Having a degraded view of Christ and his sacrifice, as many people that fill a church do. They view Jesus. They'll come in on a Sunday morning and they'll sit there. They'll say yes and amen, but they view Jesus as merely a helper for them. They come to Christ that he might just enrich their life a little bit. Somebody to make them feel a little bit better about themselves. They view Jesus as an add-on to their life and their agenda. Hopefully he'll come in and make it a little better and a little smoother in my daily life. And they think along the lines of, you know, I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. I got my own program. I got my own agenda. But I'm going to bring Jesus on board so he might help me along the way. A lot of people view Jesus that way, don't they? If I see another bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot, I'm going to lose my mind. Because it's a degrading of Christ and his sacrifice. Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's the one who has come to endure the full wrath of God Almighty and set you free. That's not your co-pilot. He's not here just to help you out a little bit. That's not his purpose in coming. He came to endure the entirety of the wrath that we were headed for. And when we get that church, it'll affect every portion of our life. When we stop viewing him as just a little helper on the side and start viewing him as the one who came and took the wrath of God Almighty, it'll change the way that we see things. It'll affect our relationship with God. It'll affect our devotional time, won't it? Because we're going to want to spend time with the one that loves us that much. Think about that for just a second. You mean that Jesus came and he hung on that cross and in that moment he absorbed all of the wrath of God that was due for me? Somebody that loves me that much, I want to spend some time with him. I want to hang out with them. It'll change our devotional life. It'll affect our personal holiness. If we understand the great cost, if we understand the cup of wrath that was taken to set us free, we won't be as flippant about sin. We'll take it more seriously, won't we? It'll affect our fervency in prayer. It'll affect our fervency in sharing the gospel with other people that don't know Christ because now we have an understanding and a consciousness that they're still heading for God's wrath and we don't want that for them. And it'll affect our worship, won't it? We're getting ready to have a time of worship. If we really understand what Christ did for us, it'll affect our worship. If we have any real sense of what we've been saved from in the wrath of God, it'll create in me, it'll create in you this deep appreciation and gratitude and love and adoration that will then naturally well up in exaltation and worship. There's a vast difference, isn't there, in a worshiper that views Jesus as just their little helper on the side and a worshiper who understands that Jesus came to, took, to take the full wrath of God upon himself to save them from sin. There's going to be a vast difference in the worship of those two people, isn't there? And so we're pretty much done. And you're saying thank you and amen. But guys, the reason 
that I want you to understand the wrath of God, the reason that we're not skipping over verse 18, the reason that we're going so deep into it, the reason I want to un- want you to understand the wrath that you've been saved from is because I want you to be in awe of the goodness of God. I want you to be in awe of Him. When we understand God's wrath, which we've been saved from, He will become all the more beautiful to us. I just had this kind of vision in my mind. It's not in my notes. I just thought about it. But imagine, there's these kids that that are caught in a, um, well, let me start here. You got up this morning, you walked outside, and you saw the sun sunshine, and you said, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Sky's blue, beautiful day to be in Hawaii. The mountains are green. We love it, and we appreciate it on a certain level. But I was watching on the news that there's these uh, soccer team that's caught in a cave somewhere. I don't know how long have they been in there. Long time now. One week? Two weeks. Two weeks. They're covered in mud, right? They, they, they're eating hardly anything, and they're having to pump oxygen in and they're just nasty and dirty and funky, and they've been in the dark all this time. Now imagine what's going to happen when you walk out of there and see the sunlight. It's a different appreciation, isn't it, than what you had this morning? Because you feel the filthiness and the dirt, and you know the contrast of being in the dirt and the ugliness, and now you come out in the beautiful sunlight, and you say, praise the Lord. That's what happens when we understand the wrath of God Almighty. We understand what we've been saved from, and it's like coming out of that thing, but not for a couple weeks, for like a millennium, and coming out and saying, I see the light, and I see the sunshine, and God is all the more beautiful because I understand what I was saved from. Amen? Lord, we, uh, we come to you now, and we pray that you'd give us a real consciousness of that which we've been saved from. I, I don't know that any one of us will completely understand it, but give us at least what we can understand. We can certainly understand enough to know that we were so very lost in such a dark cave when you shine the light upon us. Lord, help us. Help us to see ourselves rightly. And help us to see you rightly. And may we then take the beauty of your salvation and turn it around into exaltation and worship you for what you're worth. We pray this in Jesus' name.